Well, one of the um, important questions that anybody that's a Christian has to ask is how do you relate to the world around you? So that's a, that's a big question because the world that we live in is not a Christian world. It doesn't mean there's not Christians in it, but it's not a Christian world. And so a really important question that Christians have to ask themselves is how do we live in a world, how do we relate to a world that is not Christian? That's an important question. You may have thought about that yourself, and many people think about that. And there's a, I mean, that's a big topic that we could spend a lot of time talking about is what's our relationship supposed to look like with the world? You know, we've looked at our enemies and friends and husbands and wives and parents and children, all sorts of things. But now we're going to kind of take a a big topic of the world. Um, So how do you relate to the world? And some people have said, okay, well, the way that we should relate to the world maybe is to fight against the world. And some people have said maybe the way we relate to the world is to separate ourselves out of the world and try to create a uh, Christian enclave or to maybe try to make the world we live in a Christian world through governments and through all sorts of other channels to make it a Christian world. Or maybe it's just we blend in kind of undercover secret agents and just live our lives kind of just fitting in and trying not to let anyone know and we just uh, assimilate into the world. How do we live in the world? How do you live and thrive and relate to a world that is not a Christian world? That's an important question that we have to ask because the world is different. The world is not a place that says God is my king, that says I live my life based on God's ways. There's different values, there's different things that the world has within it. So Christians have to say, how do we live in a world that we would say, this is not my home, we believe heaven's our home, that God is my king, that Jesus is my king, that the structures here, the rulers here are not our ultimate authority, that, that we have to say, how do we live in this world? And before we answer that question, um, we have to ask the question, who are we? Because if, if you're going to ask the question, how do we live in this world? How do we relate to this world? First, you just have to go, well, who, who am I that that question even has to be asked? Why does that question even have to be asked of myself of how do I relate to the world? How do we relate to the world? So let's take a look at what Peter says. And Peter writes this letter uh, to, to Christians And Peter was uh, one of Jesus' closest friends. He was one of the early founders of the church. And we're going to see what Peter has to say to us of how do Christians live in the world that is not a Christian world? Why are we even here in the first place? I mean, couldn't have been the case that God could have said, okay, this is not your home. I'm your king. The world's kings are not your kings. So if you belong to me, then I just take you out of here. That could have been the case. So why does God leave us here to relate to the world? Why? Well, first we have to ask, who are we? So this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. We'll have the scripture all up on here, but if, um, if you want to look at it in the Bible, you can, and there should be a Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that, by the way. But here's, here's the first question, is just who are we? And here's how Peter begins. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here's, here's, what, here's what Peter says, okay? To, to ask, to answer the question, how are we supposed to live in a world that's not a Christian world? How are we supposed to live here? We first have to start with, who are we? And first thing you have to see is this. Peter is talking to a group of people. He's not talking to just individuals. He's not talking to just you, singular. He's talking to us, plural, us, collectively. This is very important because often the way that we read the Bible, if you, if you do read the Bible, we view it individualistically because we think it's about me. It's about me and it's about me and God. But Peter is speaking to a group of people. He uses terms like a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. He's speaking plurally to us collectively. So that's the first thing we have to notice is he's talking to men and women that are living their life together in community following Jesus. So that's, that's the first thing that we have to see is when Peter addresses who are we, he's talking to a group of people. He's not just talking to an individual person. He's not just concerned with you and your relationship with God, but rather to a community of people. That's the first thing we, that we see here that Peter says. And this group of people is somewhere kind of scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And this group of people, back then, they were not at the center of society. Christians were marginalized, they were looked down upon, they were ridiculed. I mean, many people called them atheists because they didn't believe in the gods of the Roman Empire. So these people were not people that were powerful people. They were not people that were well thought of. They were people kind of spread all throughout. They were people that were ostracized. They were people that had been removed from their family and removed from the center of society. So Peter's writing to a group of people here that the culture around them, the dominant culture around them, doesn't say, yes, we believe what we, you believe. Yes, we value what you value. Yes, we assent to the things that you assent to. They would say, no, you're weird. You're kind of outcasts. I mean, some of these people were persecuted and killed and jailed. And I mean, these were not people of power. They were not people at the center of society. So Peter's writing to a group of people, people that are on the outskirts of society. And this is what he says. He, he says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're people for his own possession. And all of those terms there are pulled out of the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And they're terms that, that God used of Israel, which... In the beginning, that was God's chosen people that he chose to, to do exactly what this says, to declare his excellencies. But now, Peter applies that to the church. He applies that to Christians. He uses those same terms that were used in the Old Testament for Israel as God's people and says, now you are God's people. You are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. And here's what that is saying. This is saying that this is a people that is set apart by God for God. 
that they are to be distinct. That there's a quality of distinctiveness to them. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That there's a distinct quality that He says, you are mine and there's something different about you. I have a special calling for you. What he says is that as Christians, we're to be people that are governed by a different, a different set of values. We're to be governed by a different king, a different, a different identity. See, look, here, here's the thing. At the core, there's two ways that we can have an identity. We can have an identity, who we are, just asking the question, who am I? We can get a sense of identity from God or from anything else. I know that's kind of cheating. It's like saying there's only two numbers, one and everything else. But, but that is what is true. That we get our sense of identity from either God or anything else. And in the world, we get identity from all sorts of things. People get identity from the clubs that they belong to, from the activities that they're a part of, from their race, from their nation, from their political affiliation. You can get identity from all sorts of things. You can get identity, who you are, how you have meaning, how you have worth, how you have value, from all sorts of things in life. Peter mentions some of those types of things of nation and possession and race, that, that we can get identity from anything really in life, but this, Peter is saying, no, actually, you're a nation, you're a race that gets its identity from God. That the whole identity of Christians is found in God. It's found in Jesus. So what that means here is that, I mean, they're not really a nation. There's no such thing as a, a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a nation that's name is Christian. or no such thing as a race that is Christian. But he's saying that those fundamental qualities that you think of when you think of identity are redefined because as a Christian, you are Christian first and everything else far, far, far second. It doesn't mean that race doesn't matter or that national affiliation doesn't matter. It doesn't mean those things don't matter or that you should despise those things. But it does mean that first and foremost, if you're a Christian, that's your fundamental identity. That everything starts with that. That everything begins with You are my people. You are my race. You are my nation, God says. So that's a way different way of looking at life if the first foundational identity is found in God, not in these things or the other things that we find identity in. And God does that, it says here, so that we would proclaim His excellencies. See, the reason that God did this both with Israel and then with the church today is because he is setting a place where people can see what does it look like to have life with God? What does it look like to live with God as king? What does it look like to live where God rules and reigns? What, what does that kind of place look like? What does that kind of lifestyle look like if God is king? If a people said, we are a nation where God governs all of us. So God takes a people and says, live like that. You're a city within a city. You're a nation within a nation. You're a race within all of your races. 
Think about it like this. A lot of times, if a city is doing something particularly well, so in, in our city, uh, Stapleton is one of those places. And if you've been to Stapleton, you might think that's weird. But on a national level, Stapleton has kind of done this um, just starting from ground zero and building back up a neighborhood and a whole community. So it used to be where the airport was and they scrapped the airport and then they've been able to start from scratch. And a lot of times cities don't get that ability to just completely start from scratch and build, build something. And so people from all over the nation come to Denver to see Stapleton. I know that probably shocks you, but it's true. They come from all over the nation to see Stapleton, to see how have they done something from scratch? How have they done urban planning and, and, and development? And, and how have they built a neighborhood? And how have they designed it as a, just from the ground up? And so people come here and go, we want to see what this city looks like. We want to see what it looks like because we've heard it's good. We've heard that you've done something different. And it attracts people to come and look at it. The same is true with um, the Rhino neighborhood because it used to all be industrial and warehouses. And, and now they've scrapped a bunch of that stuff or reused it. And they've got great places there like the Source and all these things where it's a beautiful neighborhood now when it used to just be kind of bunch of industrial stuff. And so people are looking at that and saying, how are you doing urban development and city planning? They want to come and look at that stuff. Okay, so this is what this is. He's saying, you are my chosen race, my people. He's talking, again, not specifically just to an ethnic group, but to Christians, the church, saying, I'm creating a people. And then from all over the place, people will come and look at that and they'll be able to see how I do things. They'll be able to see what it looks like when, when city planning or when God planning looks good. They'll be able to see what life with me looks like so that people are drawn to that and see what it looks like when something is done differently. People come from all over the country to see particular places in Denver because there's something unique. There's something different. There's something done well. And God says, I'm going to create a group of people that live in model life of what it looks like. The one place on earth, the church, what, what it looks like when God is king. What it looks like to live life in relationship with God. So that's, that's the calling. It's a calling to be distinct, a calling to be separate. And part of this, as I said, is he writes this to a community because you can't really do that by yourself. You can live a good life and you can be a good person, but you can't, you can't be a nation by yourself. I mean, that might be an interesting ambition to try out, but I mean, you can't say, I'm going to write my own constitution and have my own Independence Day and have my own parade. I'm my own nation. I mean, that, that would be interesting. Um, you could make a documentary about yourself, and I'm sure it'd get a lot of traction with some folks. Um, but you can't do that by yourself. That's why, that's part of the reason that God calls us into community is because he's developing a new society. He's developing a new city. And so we need one another to do this. This is, some of you maybe have experienced this where you've tried to be a Christian by yourself. You've tried to follow Jesus by yourself. You've tried to live as a part of God's kingdom by yourself. And you found this is really difficult. And it could be difficult even with others, but it's especially difficult if you're trying to do it by yourself. 
It's part of why we need community. So, the first question is, how are we as Christians supposed to live in a world that's not Christian? How are we supposed to relate to a world that has different value systems, that has different identity? How are we supposed to do that? Well, the starting point is just this. You have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. You have to know that these things are true. If you want to know how it is you're supposed to live, how it is you're supposed to relate in a world that that doesn't share those things, you just have to go, well, who am I? Who are we? And so Peter answers that question for us. And then secondly, if who you are is the starting point, then you have to ask, how does who I am connect to how I live? How does who we are connect to how we live? How does who you are connect to how you live? If that's who you are, how does that connect to how you actually live your life? And here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Let me just pause there. So he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, reminding them again who they are. This is who you are. Your royal priesthood, your holy nation, your people for his own possession, your sojourners and exiles. And I urge you as who you are to live this certain way. So he says, remember, this is who you are. And so because that's who you are, Live like this and goes on to list various things. And we'll look at those things. But he starts with saying your behavior, your life, the pattern of your living, all of that flows out of your identity. Your behavior, your life, your actions flows out of your identity. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And he just got done telling us previously. He's reminding, reminding, reminding. This is who you are. Thus... This is how you live. Think of it this way. If, uh, if any of you are Marines, which I doubt is the case, um, not because of how you look. You might, we do have a Marine. Okay, well, here we go. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, here. So here's what this is like. This must have been Providence. You'll know what I'm talking about. I don't know why I think of it with Marines, probably because of movies, but, but here's, uh, here's what happens with Marines in the movies, okay? You, you can confirm later to me if this is true. But what happens is... If they're kind of being weak or they're being a sissy or something like that, they say, come on, you're a Marine. And they remind them who you are. Some of your families might have done this. They might have said, you're a Davis or you're a Schofield or you're a whatever it is. You're this. This is who you are, which meant, hey, this is who you are. So be like this. Live like this. They do this in action movies all the time, too. Um, I was thinking about the movie Red with Bruce Willis and Morgan Freeman, and it's got these older characters that used to be kind of action star, hero type things, CIA or something like that. And what happens is, I think particularly with Bruce Willis, he's shopping in the, the grocery store or something, and he's living a very domesticated life, and one of his partners it comes to him and says, this isn't who you are. This Really? This, you're just going to kind of bake cookies and stuff? This isn't who you are? Because of who you are, you need to live like this. All behavior flows out of understanding identity. 
whether that's at a marine level, which we will confirm later if that is true, or a family name level, or a Bruce Willis level, all of that flows out of who you are, identity. Which is why Peter says, I urge you, and this is why he set this up previously, saying who we are, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do X, Y, Z. This is who you are. Your behavior flows out of your identity. The way that who you are connects with how you live is because a fundamental principle of life is that all behavior flows out of identity. If you get it the other way around, then you really get messed up. Because what happens is if you're a Christian and you say, well, who I am is going to be based on what I do. So if I do these things, then I am. My behavior leads to my identity. That gets it all twisted. Because what begins to happen then is if you live the right way, then you feel, okay, I've achieved this identity. God accepts me. I'm God's people. I'm God's nation or God's race or however you want to look at it. That if I live this way, now I'm accepted. Now I'm part of God's family. And I've done it. I've done a good job at it. And then you look down on the other people that haven't done a good job at it. Or what happens is you fail miserably. So if you believe that your identity, your central standing and your worth is based on your behavior, then and you try to do it, you try to live the right way, you try to do the right things, you try to be God's people, and it doesn't work out, then you just feel like another failure, and you feel miserable. But the other way around is that your identity is established because of what God has done. He says who you are. He says, you're my chosen race, you're my people. Therefore, live like it. Be who you are. All behavior flows out of identity. If you get it the wrong way, it gets, it gets twisted. And here's what Peter specifically says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What he's reminding us there is that this world is not our home. A sojourner is someone that's on a journey. An exile is someone that's not in their home. And he says, I urge you as who you are, your sojourners and exiles, which is to say this world is not your home. This world's not your home. You're on a journey to someplace better. You're on a journey to to be in full. We, We are in relationship with God now, but you're on a journey to be in perfected relationship with God where we'll see him clearly face to face, the Bible says. That now we see in part, but one day we'll see in full. We're on a journey to that place where there's uninhibited relationship with God, not marked by sin. We're on a journey to a place that is perfected. We're on a journey to a new heavens and a new earth, the Bible says. So you're, you're on a journey, if you're a Christian, to another place. But what begins to happen is if we forget who we are, then we just kind of settle in. Forget who you are, you just sort of get cozy, kick off your boots or tennis shoes. Um, I wear boots. You kick off whatever you wear, your flip-flops, you kick them off, you sit down in a comfy chair and just settle in. Go, this is a nice home. And you begin to build a kingdom here. And you begin to dwell in and love and soak in the kingdom here. 
instead of remembering, wait, 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 I'm, I'm on a journey. Who I am is a sojourner. Who I am is an exile. But if, if we forget who we are, then we just start to settle in. It's like, uh, I like spy movies. And one of the things they always tell the spies, if they're undercover, whether it's police, deep undercover like Donnie Brasco or, or other shows, undercover in the Soviet uh, Union back in the Cold War and all that kind of stuff, one of the things they tell people is, hey, remember who you are. Re- don't, hey, snap out of it. Remember who you are. This isn't your home. You're not actually a bad guy. Remember who you are. Part of our life, the way that we live out who we are, the the way that we know how to live is by remembering who it is that we are. The way that, that our identity connects with our life is remembering who you are, remembering it's not your home, remembering it's not your kingdom. And he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he says, I urge you I urge you to remember your identity. I urge you to remember that this world is not your home. I urge you. I urge you in that. Because you know what? When we live in this world, it's really easy to have that begin to slide. It's really easy to get settled in. It's really easy to get comfortable. It's really easy to focus on the here and on the now. It's really easy to do that. And so he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, remember who you are and live like this. Remember that you're God's people. Remember that you're on a journey. I urge you to do that because the world itself is drawing you in and saying, no, 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 no. Come this way. I urge you this way. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Whatever you have your eyes on, whatever attracts your heart, whatever, whatever you're drawn to in your heart, whatever your affections are set on, that's what looks good to you, and that's how you begin to build your life. And if, if our, it's not Jesus, if it's the world, then we forget, wait a minute, this isn't my home. I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. I'm God's people. Next thing. How do we live out then who we are? The first thing we need to know is who we are. The second thing is we have to understand how it is that our behavior connects with who we are. And then third is, okay, well, how do we live out who we are? How do we actually do that? And Peter tells us two things. He tells us to abstain and he tells us to conduct So let's look at both of these. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says, you are sojourners, you are exiles, and so this is what I want you to do. Live like who you are, which begins with abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now the way that that is worded, abstain, is continual sense. It's not do that once and you're good to go. It's an ongoing, lifelong process. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And he says this, abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
He's not pointing out specific behaviors. Notice that. But what he is saying is that what rules our life, what governs our life, what happens way before there's behavior is passion. What happens way before there's action in our life is desire in our life. That's true just across the board. Everything that we do comes from our desires, comes from our passions, the good things we do and the bad things we do. Life is filled with all sorts of passions, whether that's a passion to be known, to be recognized, to be respected, to be accepted by other people, a passion for success, a passion for family, a passion for a significant other in your life, a passion for name recognition, a passion for wealth, a passion for comfort, security, whatever it might be. Our life is governed by passions, desires. And before there's ever any action, there's passions that take place. All that we do, whether it's how we work, what we say, what we think, how we play, how we relate to one another, it's governed by passions. And so Peter's going after the passions, not even just specific actions. He doesn't name any specific actions. But he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. The flesh doesn't mean necessarily your physical body but it means that which is different from God. That which is not of the Spirit of God. The Bible pits against one another the Spirit and the flesh, which doesn't mean physical skin, but it means those things which are against the Spirit of God. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. Why? Why should we do that? Because they wage war against your soul, he says. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And this is very important because we are told, be passionate. Follow your passions. Follow your heart. Right? Aren't those good? Isn't it good to have passions? Isn't it good to have desires? Isn't it good to follow my heart? Well, it can be. But there are passions which are against God. And ultimately, they wage war against your soul. That's intense. That's some intense language. If you were ever mad at someone and you wanted to say, I will wage war against your soul, hang up. I mean, that's pretty intense, right? Wage war against your soul. Which is to say that it wages war against your enjoyment in God. It wages war against your peace in God. It wages war against who it is that God has called you to be. When we pursue these passions, which seem good, right? Because we want them. They're passions. So they, they seem appealing. They seem enticing. They seem tempting. So we go towards them. And yet... They wage war against our very soul. They take us away from finding our satisfaction in God. They take us away from enjoying relationship with God. They take us away from peace and contentment with God. They take us away from remembering that the world is not our home. So he says these wage war against your soul. And some of you have felt this. I've felt it at times. Some of you have felt that war take place. Maybe a long time ago. Maybe you lost the war in something. 
You felt desires and passions and you felt it warring and fighting. And then it was just kind of like, man, whatever. The war is done. I want what I want. And maybe you begin to then feel exactly what he's talking about. It wasn't just a war of ideas. It was a war against your soul. You begin to lose satisfaction in God, contentment in God, joy with God. I mean, I know many people have had stories of at one time I really loved God and I enjoyed God and, and in certain life courses, the war wins out. The passions win the war. Some of you might be in the middle of this battle right now, today. Some of you might be there. And I would ask you to heed Peter's words that they wage war against your very soul. Peter says, beloved, he says, I love you. And there's passions that you have that will wage war against your soul. So, first, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the first thing of how we live out who we are. Second thing he says is this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That's just a word that means not God's people. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he says, avoid, abstain from the passions of your flesh. That's the first thing. And second is live good. Conduct your life in a way that's good. To follow Jesus, to be who you are, doesn't mean don't do bad things. Maybe that's half of it. But it's also conduct your life in a way that people see your good deeds so they glorify God, keep your conduct honorable. There's, there's not just an avoidance of negative, but there's an action of positive, or however the best way to say that would be. Keep your conduct among those that are not God's people honorable so that they see it. They view it. They see, man, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with God. This is what it looks like to have God as king. This is what it looks like. They see that, and though their, their initial tendency may be to speak against you as evildoers, maybe some of you have felt this, where people that are not Christians look at your life and go, man, you're weird, or you do things wacky, or you... Man, I feel like you're hypocritical or judgmental or whatever sort of accusations that might be thrown your way. And he says, look, they're gonna, people are going to speak against you as evildoers. But live in such a way, live a good life, live a way that's honorable, live in a way that is good and shows the goodness of God. So that though that might be an initial inclination is to look at your life and go, that seems like a weird life. The more that they see you, the more they get to know you, they see, okay, I might still think some of that, but I see that there's goodness here. I see something different here. I see spiritual Stapleton here. I don't think that phrase is going to catch on. Um, I hope it doesn't. And glorify God on the day of visitation. See, there's a the first half is that we're supposed to abstain from passions that wage war against our soul. This is a new passion. This is so that, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, so there's a reason, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, instead they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
which means there's a new passion that you care for people and you care for God's glory. You want people to see the goodness of God. Peter wants that to be our passion that governs our lives. That we want people to see the goodness of God. So keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct honorable. And here's, here's some specific things he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by, once again, he says this, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So this is that playing out of how do we conduct our lives in an honorable way. I mean, if I were to summarize this, it's this phrase here, living as servants of God. So we live in such a way where the government, the authority around us, we don't buck up against that, we don't fight against that, but rather we live good lives as humble as servants, we live in, unless it goes against God, we live in submission to the authority around us. We live in a way that says, yeah, God is my king. And, and truly, at the end of the day, yeah, you might be my governor, you might be my president, but really, I have a true king. But instead of using that as an excuse to say, so then I can do whatever I want, you don't use it as a cover-up for evil, but rather you use your freedom to be a servant of God, to show people how good He is. To show people how good that God is by your very life. So yes, God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be holy. But it isn't just for your sake. It's for the sake of other people to see how good He is. God wants you to live a certain way. Yeah, that's true. But He gives us so that's in this which is not just for our personal gain, but it's so that people look and see God is good. It's so that people look and see there's something different about the way God does things. There's a different way of love, a different way of leadership, a different way of service, a different way of time and money and relationships. And There's a different way of living life. That God must be good, or at least altogether different. This is what he says, that we live out who we are by living in this way. So here's the summary. We're supposed to live lives that are distinctly good. We're supposed to live lives that are just every day. No, I mean, he's not, he's not going through and giving us crazy things to do and saying, if you want to live a good life or you want to show that God's good, do this and this and that. I mean, he's not, he doesn't do that. It's just live a life that's distinctively good, that shows the goodness of God, that lives not separate from, but among those that don't know Him. That's what he said before, is live among the Gentiles. The NIV says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they would see God and glorify Him. So live distinctively good lives. Live distinctively good lives everyday lives around and with people that don't know God. 
that that's, that's the focus, that's the thinking behind life. I want people to see how good God is. I want people to see that. I want people to enjoy that. I see myself as a, communi- as a part of a community that God has said, let people see what life with me looks like. Let people see what my kingdom looks like. And people then enter into that and go, there's something different here. That's, that's the summary. That's the calling. And, and for you, for all of us, that's what our life should be about. And I would say this too, if you're dating or looking for somebody to date, this might seem like a weird application, but just hear me out. Oftentimes we just think, who's a Christian? I think I want to date a Christian. Well, that's a good starting point if you're a Christian. Um, But I would tell you, look for somebody that gets that. Look for somebody that says, that's what my life's about. My life isn't just about my own personal holiness. My life isn't just about, yeah, I want to be a good person and go to church. But I view my life as what Peter says my life is supposed to be about. That God has set me apart to live in such a way that people would know Him. To live in such a way that people see His goodness. Is that the focus of your life? And for those of you dating and looking for dates or wanting people to look at you as a date, or however that goes... um, Live in that way. Is that your focus? Okay, so last thing. Where's the motivation for that come from? Let's go back to how he started. Where's the motivation for all of that come from? Let me read this to you one more time. This is how he started it. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is how He sets this up. He says, you were called out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were not a people. You had no community that was God's community. You didn't have mercy, and now you have mercy. From darkness to light. See, here's the thing. To the degree that you understand that you were in darkness, if you're a Christian, that you were in darkness, but that God called you into His marvelous light, to the degree that you get that is to the degree that you're going to want to go proclaim His excellencies. If you believe wasn't that dark. You know, it was, it was kind of like this room. It was a little bit of light and some of the shades were pulled down, but it wasn't, there was a couple candles in there. It wasn't that dark. And then, oh, okay, God pulled up all the shades and turned the lights on. Oh, okay. That was kind of nice of Him. If that's how you view it, then that's how you proclaim it. Go, yeah, God's kind of good, you know. But if you understand what the Bible teaches, that we were in utter darkness. This is all of us. The Bible says that we're born as people that are against God, that we're opposed to God, that we're children of wrath, children of disobedience, children of darkness. The Bible uses this kind of language. It can sound harsh sometimes, I know that. 
but look at your heart and you see it's true when compared to God. That once we were in darkness and God called us into His marvelous light. So let me ask you, do you see that you were in darkness? And then do you see the marvelousness, the marvel of His light? Do you see how marvelous the light is that He's brought you into? Some of you have stories where you look at that and you, you can see that specifically and go, I remember I was in darkness and yeah, I'm in marvelous light now. And you see that. Some of you, maybe it's not so profound and so dramatic. It doesn't feel like that. But can you view your life today like that? Where you see, man, I continually stray back towards darkness. And God says, no, enjoy my light. Enjoy my light. And God keeps doing that. God keeps giving mercy. Once you had not received mercy, the Bible teaches that our sins are worthy of death. That our lives lived apart from God. And this is what sin is. I mean, many people don't think, I'm not a sinner. I'm not dark. Well, if you only define that as killers and murderers and crazy thieves and all sorts of things, then yeah, maybe it doesn't seem like that. But if you define it the way the Bible does, which is people that live apart from Him, people that live life building their identity on different things, with different passions, if you see that, the Bible says that that sin is worthy of death, but that God gave us mercy because Jesus came, died on a cross, and paid the penalty that we should pay, and then gives us the life to enjoy His marvelous light. See, all of this says this. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It says, you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You would not receive mercy, but now you have mercy. He called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Didn't have to say, I'm going to fight to get into the light. I'm going to work hard to get into the light. It says that God said, come into the light and called you. That He went after us. That He pursued us. And if you're not a Christian today, this may be the first time that you hear God calling you even now. Out of darkness. Into His marvelous light. And God does that every day with all of us. Even those of us that are Christians and have experienced this decisively, God still does this and says, come out of that darkness. Enjoy my light. It's marvelous. Enjoy life with me. Enjoy who I am. Enjoy my presence. Enjoy being in my people, in my family. Enjoy being in my nation. And He calls us. And He calls us. And when you experience that, you then proclaim the excellencies. He did that. He saved you if you're a Christian and if you're not a Christian, let me just tell you this. Isn't, this. isn't this cool that even the lives around you, if you know people that are Christians, if you know people that are Christians, God put them in your life because He loves you. God put them in your life because He cares for you and wants you to see a piece of who He is. That's how much He cares for you. That's how much He loves you. 
called you and He's calling you even now. And when you experience that, you want to proclaim His excellencies. You want to do that. And that's why He did it. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for His own possession. That you may proclaim His excellencies. That you may tell people and show people how good He is. He brings you into His light so that you show other people how good it is. That you speak of Jesus to other people. That you show other people and tell other people this is the marvelous light. This is Jesus. This is His mercy. This is His grace. If you've experienced that, then you proclaim that. Sometimes we try to muster up an ability or a desire to proclaim His excellencies, but if we experience His excellencies, we don't have to do that. Are you experiencing His excellency? Are you experiencing that you've gone from darkness to light? Are you experiencing that that's what God's heart for you is? Are you experiencing the mercy He has for you every single day? If you are, then you proclaim it. If you're not, then ask God to show you. 